Welcome People First Leaders. This is a special episode of the Leading People First podcast, where you get to listen in on the honest and uncomfortable conversations from our latest Leaders of Equity, Allyship, and Diversity event. If you are ready to take a stand and take action against hate, violence, inequity, and injustice in our society, you are not alone. The Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity host weekly events to allow leaders to come together, discuss, learn, share, and activate to make a difference in the world. Listen to the end to get more information on how you can join us at our next live event. Quick warning, this episode covers the topic of human trafficking and may be triggering to some. You're about to hear from Kelly White, who shares how diversity amongst Americans especially is a crucial misunderstanding. Being able to appreciate and recognize cultural diversity is key in many aspects of helping foundations, but especially in human trafficking. From being able to recognize signs to the appropriate approach to aftercare can all be traced back to the culture of everyone involved. So get ready to come together and lead, and let's dive in. We are blessed right now to have the company of Miss Kelly White. Um, And I'm just doing this because it's fun. She is MSN, FNP-BC, APRN, RNFA. She is a researcher with the West Texas Academic Collaborative Office of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's CSTT, advocate for sex abuse survivors, consultant to NGOs and healthcare. She is a family nurse practitioner with over 16 years experience in medicine. She has worked in family health, women's health, neurosurgery, and in the hospital sex setting, excuse me. Her work in human trafficking has taken her all over the state and soon around the country researching best practices and policies to affect a change in human trafficking and hopefully someday an elimination of it. She continues to work full-time as a nurse practitioner for a neurosurgery practice and dedicates most of her free time to human trafficking and research related to it. She has developed strong relationships over the years with NGOs, other hospitals, LEOs, and survivors who all work together to break the bonds of trafficking. So uh, without further ado, I am going to turn it on over to Miss Kelly White. Thank you all so much for letting me be here, Sarah. I appreciate you so much. Um, No, I don't use a presentation. A lot of that is just because... um, I find that I just run through bullet points and it keeps me from being able to focus on the things that I want to focus on. Um, Plus, I also know that sometimes you just kind of get led down different rabbit holes and that's okay too. So um, I want to chat a little bit about what we see as far as diversity goes amongst Americans. You know, we're, we're, living in such an incredibly diverse time and and a time where people are um, very aware of the diversity that they experience themselves and what their friends and family are experiencing. Um, And then being able to recognize those things amongst each other um, and amongst those in the community has become a little bit more difficult. And, And some of that is, and I won't jump into this part of it a whole lot, is that there's just so much to be able to, you know, quote unquote, define who we are or who we feel that we are. Um, And then you trace that back a little bit to, you know, just your very own nurturing at home of how you were raised to feel about certain things. So all that stuff comes into play. And then, of course, you always have um, gender inequalities, especially when it comes to, um, you know, certain genders that it's not recognized as easily. There's a huge gap in in, um, transgenders being able to have any type of recognition and people standing up for them and being able to, to fight for the things that they feel is important to them as well. So um, I, I think that we're seeing this become such a bigger problem in a lot of different ways, because culturally we have just significantly diversified ourselves um, rather rapidly to the point that it becomes so difficult for people even to be able to identify with themselves, much less have those of us that are trying to intervene on their behalf, be able to provide that sensitive care that they need. So those are some of the things that I try to focus on. Um, I'm doing a little bit of research right now. I've, I've gone through a couple of different um, races and cultures, and I just finished up doing a big uh, sit down and an interview with some people that are from the Indian descent from a certain part of India. Um, I'm not sure 
how aware you guys are that there are even certain certain Indian um, families that they will split themselves up via tribe, even in their own uh, neighborhoods. And so being able to recognize what is normal for them versus what um, we think as an American is normal, you know, as a, as a West Texan, I may think that if you don't walk in and look, make eye contact with me and shake my hand, you're being rude or disrespectful. Whereas somebody from a different culture may say, if you walk in and touch me and make, make eye contact with me, you've been disrespectful. And so there's all those things that, that come about when we start talking about cultural diversity and cultural awareness and being able to recognize those things. So some of the stuff that I'm trying to help law enforcement officials and uh, nonprofit organizations and advocates be able to understand and pick up on is that the, the bullet points that we tell people are your red flags associated with human trafficking may not be what we've always thought they were. You know, things always have to evolve with time. And I think that being able to advocate on the behalf of a victim and or survivor should evolve as well. As that survivor um, pattern evolves, then we have to be able to follow that pattern as well. And so some of that has been lacking. And one of the things that I point out to people is that, you know, we, we oftentimes try to educate, especially in the healthcare setting, um, triage nurses, emergency department nurses, those people that, are, that we consider to be on the front lines, law enforcement officials, um, as to, you know, those flags, those signs, those indicators of trafficking. And what we think as being normal may not be for them. So some of the instances that I give them is um, one of the flags that we tell people is that if you have an individual in your room or, or that you're in contact with that has, um, maybe they have someone in the room with them that's refusing to leave the room. Maybe that person is helping to answer their questions or answering the questions for them is kind of being, um, not necessarily bossy, but maybe a little bit in charge, maybe not as willing to leave that person behind. Um, for some of us, especially some of us, you know, Southern Americans may think mm, that that could be a red flag. That person's not being left alone. They're not being allowed to talk for themselves. They're not being allowed to make these decisions. Whereas that culture very specifically may state, no, she cannot speak to you unless another adult female is in the room. No, she actually cannot make eye contact with you because that's rude for them. Um, and so I think that being able to recognize those different um, opportunities to save face and to be able to provide that person with some culturally sensitive care becomes very important. Um, and I think that as we, as we progress through being able to recognize those signs, you absolutely have to be able to overcome those barriers. And a lot of that is just the, the, um, the barriers of our own personal choices or the barriers of our own personal thoughts or belief when it comes to how we would react to a situation. So the way I, um, the way I try to get people to approach it is if your gut tells you that something is not right, or maybe you think that the tone of this conversation is not how you personally would react to a traumatic situation. If you can remove those cultural pieces of the puzzle and it still doesn't make sense then maybe it's time to start asking a few more questions. But if you if you can't even walk in and recognize, you know, this is a transgender male that is 13 years old that is living with a foster family that is from New York and he's from South Africa. And you, you know what I mean? Like you have all of these pieces, you have to be able to put those pieces of the puzzle together. And unfortunately that is becoming more and more prevalent as we start seeing our culture diversify. Um, I really try to get people to focus on what we can do better as a community and as a culture to try to help recognize those things. Um, whenever we start talking about human trafficking, we start thinking about, you know, all the pieces that go along with it, right? So we have sex trafficking, we have child sex trafficking, we have labor trafficking. And it really becomes a matter of what you are specifically concerned with as to how much you're going to be involved, right? So you have people that their passion is child sex trafficking, their passion is um, sexual abuse, maybe their passion is labor trafficking, um, trying to decide what goods they purchase or, or use or utilize that have been um, created in quote unquote a sweatshop or have been provided by an individual who buys those products somewhere overseas. So all in all, you have to decide which piece of that puzzle you wanna get involved to. It's, you know, it's like I said, we're gonna be constantly chipping away at it 
I don't know that we're ever going to see a quote unquote end to it, because I think that as humans, we're going to be constantly taking advantage of everything we can. Um, and that in- unfortunately does include other people. Um, so a lot of what I want to see come out of, especially this conversation tonight, is that for everyone to be able to recognize it, even like even watching all of y'all sign in and, and seeing your faces or seeing your names or seeing where you're from or um, gives me an opportunity to see that you guys all come from different backgrounds and you all come from different cultural settings and you all come from different beliefs, whether you were raised in a two-person, you know, a two-parent home, whether you had two dads or two moms or a traditional mom and dad, your parents were married, they weren't married. You had siblings, you didn't have siblings. You identify as a certain way than the way you were raised. And so being able to just look across all of the, um, even the people in this room right now, gives me a very, very warm feeling in my heart that you guys are all going to be able to see that we truly do come from different places. And so being able to be sensitive to those needs is, is incredibly important. Um, some of the stuff that we, we try to focus on a lot, especially in healthcare is, you know, we think about what we need to do to be able to intervene on behalf of that victim. And, and, you know, do we call the police? Do we, do we do these certain steps? And what I'm trying to gear, a lot of the profit, nonprofit organizations around here and some of the task forces and survivor organizations around here and advocates is being able to transition from taking that victim and putting her in handcuffs, him or her, and taking out that piece of the puzzle and, and putting them in a situation where they can become a survivor, where they can have the services that they need. Um, again, that all falls back to being culturally sensitive and being able to do it. So what, what we see, especially in Texas, is um, a big push, especially with law enforcement. This is something I was telling Sarah about earlier. Um, law enforcement officers truly what, truly, truly want to be able to arrest that person. And they, they want to be able to step in and put someone in cuffs and do those things. And they don't, they don't have, um, they don't have, I guess, the desire in them to try to provide a good advocate for the victim. And so that's kind of one of the shifts that we're wanting to see. So, some of the common signs of trafficking that you guys might run into, um, you may see someone that has, I'll give you an example. Maybe you have somebody who is perfectly normal on the outside. They're going to school, they're going to work, they're doing the things that they, um, you feel like would be doing on a normal basis. But then you start noticing that, hey, you know, my girlfriend has this guy that she's talking to, but she's not really saying a whole lot about him. And she always has to go on these dates, but, you know, she really won't give me a whole lot of information. He's not really her boyfriend, but then she comes back and she has her hair done and she has her nails done and she has this and she has that. And that personality of her in her starts to change. So those could start to be some flags that maybe she is being trafficked by this person. Maybe she has someone who is um, paying her for those services. So we have, we have what, what's called sugar babies. We have conditions called sugarine where we have, um, college-age girls that allow an older gentleman to pay for things for them with the thought that they're just going to go have dinner with them. I don't have to have sex with them. We're just going to go have dinner. Um, and he's going to pay me for these things. And then you end up finding out that a little bit later down the road, she has to start doing more and more <clears throat> for him to be able to provide those services. And very quickly before you know it, he has enough dirt on her to be able to talk her into doing things. Otherwise he's going to turn her into, you know, maybe the provost at the school that she goes to. Maybe he's going to tell her parents that he has new pictures of her. Um, and so slowly we start to see her being groomed into a trafficking um, situation. You may have um, a teenager that finally finds someone, let's say, let's go back to our culturally sensitive transgender person and they have no one in their circle that, you know, believes in them or understands them or can, can kind of be able to relate to how they are. And then suddenly they connect with this person on whatever app, you know, Tinder or Grindr or any of those apps. And, and suddenly that person starts telling them the things that they want to hear. Um, and with time they start, you know, giving them all the right answers and they start feeding into the insecurities that that person has, whether that's an emotional insecurity or a physical insecurity, making them feel better about themselves or the things that they feel. And then they slowly start to get that person to think that whoever they're talking to on the other end, whether they are or who are, are not who they say they are, really believes in them and really wants what's best for them. And then they can slowly start pushing them into doing things that maybe they wouldn't normally do 
Um, and then before that person knows it, they've been groomed. So that's very much the process of grooming where you take someone that normally wouldn't do a, you know, a certain act and you take them from point A to point Z. And along the way, you have them so dependent upon you and so bought into whatever story you're giving them, whether that's you're rewarding them with those emotional feelings that they don't have from someone else, or you're giving them a physical monetary reimbursement, or maybe it's just that they need someone at the other end of that phone to answer them when they text, to understand them and to listen to them. And then along the way, they've been groomed to think this person truly loves them, truly cares about them, truly wants what's best for them. And in return, they're willing to do whatever that person asks of them. And then that will turn them into um, very quickly a trafficking victim. So I'm kind of just flipping through looking at some of y'all's questions as I ask or as, as I go along. So one of the things you guys are asking about risk factors for human trafficking. So I also want to tell you that obviously you have people that are at more risk for being trafficked, right? So you have, um, you have your, your children that are runaways that are unaccompanied minors. Um, if they are homeless, if they're in the foster system, if they have any other, any other indicator that would make them seem more susceptible to being groomed, right? To being able to be influenced. That's going to be a, a big piece of your people that are at risk. But I also, I shy away from making that the big, the big piece that we look at because Anyone can be trafficked. Any human being can be groomed. Any human being can be taken advantage of, especially if they're caught in the right situation, especially if they um, are vulnerable for whatever reason. They've gone through a crappy divorce or they've, you know, they've lost their children or they've, they've had some catastrophic event in their life. They have suddenly become incredibly vulnerable. You know, one of the things that we see with trafficking is when these storms hit the coast and you have hurricanes come in and, you know, FEMA will rush out there and they'll put all these people in hotels and they'll set them up and they'll, you know, have places and stations for them to go to. Well, you may have a trafficker show up and they may rent 10 rooms all on the same floor and take them up quickly by saying, oh, I have all these family. We need all these rooms. And before you know it, people are being trafficked out of those rooms because they need the money, because they need clothes, because they need food, because their children are starving, because they don't have anyone to help them. And very quickly, you've had a very disastrous situation turn someone who was not vulnerable to before into an incredibly vulnerable person. And it can happen just like that. And it does happen very quickly. Um, I'm, I can't really give you a whole lot of statistics when it comes to different ages and genders. I can tell you there are, and this is one of my big pet peeves, is people spouting out numbers. The, some of the numbers that are out there right now were created by the Polaris Project, and I love the Polaris Project, and they're an amazing government organization. However, some of those numbers, if you look at them now, are from the 90s, from 1999, um, early 2000s. The flip side to that also is it's just like any other traumatizing event you have a significant amount of people that are not going to report it. Um, you have a significant amount of people that have not been recognized. So I don't think you can give an accurate number. You know, they said that there were, I read a study, there were 330,000 children that were being trafficked in the United States each year. Well, then the University of Texas at Austin published a study that said 79,000 children in Texas are being trafficked each year. You want me to believe that 80,000 of 330,000 came from Texas and not the other 49 states. So numbers start to not make sense when you start putting them in perspective like that. Um, the way that police and authority would identify them. So we have, especially here in Abilene, we have a cyber crimes division. We have a, a group of officers that literally their entire job is to be a creep um, and to be on Instagram and to have fake accounts and to bait people and to try to figure out where these traffickers are coming from. Um, they go after pedophiles. They go after people that have some type of pornography addiction or sexual abuse addiction to be able to reel them in and see what their clientele looks like if they are trafficking someone or if they um, are just legitimately looking at pornography, sadly. Um, I will say that even as a, this is another very specific cultural thing that I think we have to be sensitive to is that one of the things we see as being a gateway drug, if you will, to trafficking, especially to sex trafficking, is pornography, um, sex sells. And so the more, the more and more we see that becoming a thing and becoming a normalized thing, the more we start to see that it, it not necessarily isn't being identified so much as being overlooked because it becomes a normal. And heaven forbid something like this becomes part of the normal. I think that would be awful and, and a huge setback. The 
<clears throat> the things that we worry about. So pornography is very much like um, using drugs, right? So whenever you use a drug, it releases a chemical reaction inside your brain. I have worked with neurobiologists who have published studies. We've seen this repeated over and over and over. You get addicted to a drug. It releases this chemotoxin inside your brain that gives you a certain feeling, right? A certain euphoria. With time, you may need more and more um, you may need more and more of the same drug in order to feel the same high. It's the same thing with pornography. Pornography requires or gives you that same chemical reaction, that same euphoria feeling in your brain. And with time, you need more and more pornography or harder pornography to achieve the same result. Before you know it, you're buying sex from someone who isn't necessarily consenting to having that placed on the internet, or you're starting to require something harder and harder to get the same reaction. And before you know it, you've become a part of a sex trafficking ring that maybe you didn't realize you were a part of before. Um, somebody asked if it's common for victims to be re-victimized because they're not believed. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, the other piece to that, not necessarily is that um, maybe they're not believed, maybe they don't have the resources available to them. And that's what a lot of the NGOs that I work with are fighting for is to get victim services appropriate to advocate for them. I love to see survivor-led organizations because these are men and women that have been victimized, that have become survivors, and they know what it takes to be a survivor. And they know what it takes to, to have the right things available to them as time goes on. Um, I think that it's important to be able to listen to survivors because they're the ones that know who they came in contact with, what that interaction did for them or did not do for them, and what they needed to be able to get themselves in a position that they were taking care of better to where they could come out of that. Um, what has been my experience with male victims of human trafficking? So I know that this is important to you. So I'm going to touch on it real quickly. I will say that male reporting of human trafficking is significantly less than it is for females for lots of reasons. One, you see that, um, there is a, uh, sex sales and, um, it's the right way to put it, bragging rights associated with being a male when it comes to sex. I think that that's something we've seen for years since the beginning of time, it will probably be that way for a very long time. And so we see that a lot of boys don't come forward because they think that this should be normal, right? This should be a part of normal process of being a boy and becoming a man in adulthood. And so some of them don't recognize that what's happening to them is actually not okay. This is not a normal part of getting older. This is not a normal part of being a man. Um, and so we see a lot of males not come forward. Plus there's the shaming aspect of, of what happens to a boy when they're trafficked. And being able to come forward with that in a way that makes them feel comfortable where they can tell someone. Um, the flip side of that also is if you look across the board, you will see organizations that, especially when it comes to sexual trauma, are female by nature. The majority of them are women. And so getting a male victim to come out to a, a female advocate becomes that much more difficult. Um, and so those are some of the things that we see happening. So the second part to your question is the best way to help those male victim survivors, get yourself a very strong group of male advocates that are willing to be a part of this fight with you. That is absolutely essential. It is very difficult to get a boy to cut, to say anything to a female. Um, and it may even be very difficult for them in certain situations. So if you have a youth that has been trapped by their pastor and you are a part of a religious organization that is coming in to, and, and to try to provide them with some care and you're, you're presenting that from a pastoral care standpoint, you've pushed that child away because they were trafficked by their pastor or they were trafficked by their youth leader, or maybe that's their trigger. So you really have to make sure that you have a good culturally diverse, religiously diverse, gender diverse group of people that are willing to work with you on this to be able to reach all of those that truly need your help. Um, legislative initiatives to protect victims. This is huge. So um, there are tons of initiatives going on across, this, across the United States, especially across the state of Texas right now. In fact, just this week, we heard legislation testimonies from advocates, from two specific advocates, from the director of the governor's office for child sex trafficking and for the human trafficking detective that works out of Waco. Um, present to change legislation for victims and for survivors. And this is, this is going to be a series of bills that we hope will eventually make it through where those that have been arrested in the past and that have criminal records can have those expunged or have some type of ability to um, have a normal life. I have dear, dear friends of mine that are trafficking survivors that have spent 10, 15, 20 years in the penitentiary that have 
records that can't, you know, one of them, she desperately wants to go to nursing school. She can't go to nursing school. She can't pass the background track. She can't get and keep a job because she has a criminal history. So there is a huge systemic issue involved. And so what I tell people is it, this is a huge, huge puzzle and a huge, huge piece. You have to decide where you are um, in your walk with this fight. And if it's something you want to get into, and then you find a piece and you attack that piece and you let that piece turn into more and more and more because you have so many parts of it that are moving in that work off of each other. And the most important part to that is just being consistent with what you want to see accomplished and what you're going to go after to tackle it. You know, I have, I'll, I'll advocate for any victim and any survivor at any time, but there's just so many pieces of it that makes it very difficult to chip away at. So again, it's, it's something that's going to take a whole lot of time. Um, I guess, Sarah, do you want to have them break out? Are you ready for that? You know what? We have so many amazing questions and I have a backlog of them. I think we just keep going unless people really want to, to like do that. I think we just keep going with what we've got. Um, okay. This is, uh, I know almost everybody in this, in this chat and I think we can have a good discussion, all of us, but I've got at least six questions backlogged. So I okay. would say keep going. Perfect. Let's, uh, why don't you give me some questions that maybe I'm not keying in on? Okay. Um, Chris has asked, what are some things that corporate organizations or even social organizations can do to support or join the fight? What, how, how does a group that's not directly, uh, involved in this make a difference? Um, that's a great question. And it's a very simple answer. Train and educate your employees, train and educate your administration and your staff. Um, and be very intentional about that training, figure out what kind of training you feel like that organization needs. So if you're asking specifically for your own organization um, or for someone that you know, what kind of employees do you have? What kind of people do you come into contact with? And, and figure out what kind of trafficking victim you might be exposed to in that corporation. So the training that I provide for um, an emergency department full of nurses would look very different than the training that I would provide to a hotel staff. Right. So there's they see different victims and they see different things and they see different indicators. So I say find um, find um, an organization in your area that provides training. I promise you they're there. Even if even if you don't know that they're there, they're there um, and have them address the training for your specific corporation and, the, and those type of individuals that you have working for you. So, you know, that they're getting the pieces that they need. Don't just focus on the general information really try to hone in on what you feel like those employees are going to see the most. So they, they really can get the best training for what they see on a daily basis. What about things like donations or like fundraising? I know um, it's a typical of Americans to want to throw money at a problem. Where does that money make the most impact? So um, this is also kind of a soapbox of mine. And the reason for that is we see organizations that have big money behind them that put um, three-letter three letter initials behind their names that um, claim and brag to do things they don't actually do. Um, I, I try to stay out of the fight with them, but sometimes I get drawn into it. Um, I, I really, really encourage people, if you want to donate and if you want to, if money is, is where you feel like you're going to be the best served and, and by all means, organizations need the money, they need the help, find a place locally in your area that needs help getting something going. Don't don't or don't just pick a giant um, organization because they have the most flash and glamour and presence on the internet. They have that much flash and glamour and presence on the internet because they can afford to. Um, there's a lot of these organizations that I'm not going to name them by name, but you can you can go online and you can look up and see what their um, how much money they claim to bring in the year before. Some of them, you know, beg for donations and try to get volunteers, and they literally claimed a $30 million income in 2019. I, I have a problem with that. I, I know that in small towns, especially small towns like the one I live in, we have facilities and organizations that are struggling to provide a safe house to our victims because they can't get grants and funding and services and the money that they need. And then you have giant corporations that claim a $30 million income. So really being able to, to donate to your local organization is the most important. Find something close to home, find something close to you and make a change in your organization. That's how we get things to happen coast to coast. It starts where you live. And then if everybody's doing that, you're getting all those bases covered. 
So there's a brilliant uh, follow-up question to that from Karen Nelson. Um, and she's asking, could organizations be a part of reintegrating victims into an employment situation uh, or with partnerships that address the victim holistically? Does that already happen? Um, just kind of okay. questions about that. So you mean like being able to reintegrate them into society, I assume. Um, well, or even just as you were talking about your friend who can't find, who can't get into nursing school or something like that, you know, how can an organization as an entity holistically provide support? So um, there are, that's a great question, actually. There are some organizations that provide this type of training. One of the ones that we're actually working on here from a university-based perspective is being able to provide across the board care to those that are wanting to reintegrate back into some type of workforce. Now, obviously, you you have to pick the line again and what side you want to stand on if you're going to you know attack it legally to be able to get their their record expunged or if you're just going to try to reintegrate them into some type of workforce um, and what that looks like. So what I, I what ideally I would like to see here as an as a, an example would be being able to take a survivor. First of all, you have to be able to address that person's mental health needs. That absolutely has to happen first. If you cannot address that person's mental health needs in that moment, they're clearly not going to be ready for any type of reintegration into the workforce. Um, but being able to provide them with little things like they may need to get them employed. They may need an identification. Like maybe they never got the driver's license. Maybe they never finished high school. Maybe they need to help getting their GED. Maybe they need help um, getting a social security card. Maybe they need help kind of maneuvering the system because they never had anyone to teach them that maybe at home, they didn't have mom and dad for them to talk to them about what it looks like to balance a checkbook, basic life skills that they completely missed out on. Um, so you have to be able as an organization to identify what those needs are and then find the resources in your community that will help them get those resources under control. And then you take that to the next step. And then you have someone in an aftercare position that can provide them with how to get housing, how to find a job, how to buy a car, how to buy groceries, how to maintain a home. So those organizations do exist. It is typically not one. It is typically multiple and they um, will work together. So you will transition that survivor. Again, guys, this is a life, lifelong commitment to the, you, you have an advocate that needs to stand by that person. It's very much like having a foster child case manager, one person that's going to stand by them and make sure they get through those, you know, those hoops. And then I guys, I'm going to, I'm going to be completely honest. You better have some stone around your heart and recognize that that person is going to be very, very difficult to keep on track. They're going to get discouraged. They're going to get upset. They're going to get frustrated. They're going to get mad, tired, sad, all of the emotions. And the recurrence rate is incredible that the risk for them going back to the life is high because that is all they know. And because it's easy if you present them with all these different things with a, with this grand life that can be waiting for them at the end, they may decide this is too hard. I, I don't want to go through this. This is too difficult. I've got, you know, good looking so-and-so over here that's been providing for me for the last two or three years. And yeah, I get smacked around every now and then, but you know what, it's really not that bad and I don't have to make any decisions. And so those thoughts do, do tend to creep up. So there's, it doesn't come without its hinges and it doesn't come without its difficulties. So I do definitely know that you have to be able to work with organizations that are willing to take them through that process. And again, you've got to step it all the way back to meeting their mental health needs and getting them those basic life skills that maybe they don't have. Thank you for that answer. I thought that was um, really complete and pretty sensitive. Um, I'm going to circle back to a question that uh, Chelsea asked earlier. Um, so an, a victim that initially gets sent to jail and a victim that initially gets incarcerated, now they're kind of in that system. Can you tell us a little bit about what exists for them as far as resources and if it's even possible to get their record expunged? Um, so the possibility of getting their record expunged is really going to depend on obviously what they were incarcerated for. Um, and what legal ramifications they have coming out of that. So that's kind of a loaded question. I think it truly is individualized. There are, there are organizations that provide services to them after they come out of prison. The difficulty there becomes, again, those basic things of, of trying to determine, are they truly a victim? Do they need survivor services? And what that state or that community allows them to have based on what was happening when they came out. So you may have someone that 
doesn't have the mental capacity to be able to make it from point A to point Z. So you have to be able to determine what kind of services can we offer them, not only as um, a convict, but as a survivor of these traumatic events. And so that's the shift that I want to see when we start talking about cultures. You know, you, you have that culture of people that are incarcerated. That's a culture of people. Um, that is a very specific targeted amount of, or group of people that have the cards stacked against them from the moment they step out those gates, right? So we have to be able to, as a country, as an organization, and as a people say, I want to be able to provide these services for these people. I want to say my organization says, when you come out, if you were a victim of X, whatever it was, we're going to help you get this, this, and this, so you can step over to being able to do this or being able to do that. So I think that it's kind of a loaded question in the sense that there's so many different variables, but again, it all goes back to you deciding as an individual, what do you want to see be able to change in that group of peoples or that cultural specific set of peoples and then run with it and figure out what your state allows you to do and what kind of, um, uh, what kind of bills they had that allow you to be able to make change for them. You know, Tom posted on here that Connecticut has legislation in the works called the Clean Slate Act to expunge records for many of those that are incarcerated um, would do much to remove one obstacle of past. And, and I completely agree. I completely agree. I think that it really kind of depends on, on what they were there for. I know that um, if any of you guys keep up with, with presidential politics, right before President Trump left office, he did quite a bit of pardoning. And one of those was to a sex trafficking survivor. And she's actually moved to Texas and lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and she was able to be pardoned for some of the things that she has done. And that is huge. Um, we're working with legislation, especially here in Texas, to see more of things like what Tom was saying become an issue where they can present what has happened to them, um, apply for it, present all of the information, and then be able to have those things expunged. Um, Something else that I, I want to point out, you we also have to recognize that there's a culture of re-traumatization. This is a big, big thing. Every time you ask that survivor to tell his or her story, they are being re-traumatized. Every time you ask them to go before a senator or go before a legislator or go before an organization and you're dragging them through this process, right? Because you're going to do the right thing and you're going to get them back on track and you're going to do the basic life skill training that you know they need. You're re-traumatizing that person every single time. So us as a, as a peoples that don't have that trauma in our hearts, it kind of makes us a little bit more difficult to understand. But we also have to know that until we can do like what Tom says and be able to change legislation where they don't have to be re-traumatized to be able to get that freedom that they deserve, then all we're doing is, is trudging them back through it again. And so I, I think that you become very, very, um, very, very sensitive to understanding that there are just so many pieces to that puzzle and recognizing that those things have to be addressed as well. Um, I also have a hard time with, there's a, there's a term called tokenism. Um, and that is, you've got yourself your token survivor and you take him or her with you everywhere you go and you put them on the stage and they tell their story and they do all the things. And at the end of the day, people write you a check for your organization and y'all go on. Now, whether or not you're doing good things for that survivor or not, again, you're traumatizing that person to tell their story over and over and over. So being able to give that survivor an opportunity to tell their story when and if they're ready, but to make them a part of your organization is key. If you have a nonprofit organization that is serving survivors, doesn't have a survivor on board, you're not doing good. You absolutely cannot provide adequate sensitive care to people if you don't have a survivor-led advocate on your team. And I know that sounds harsh and I don't mean that to be ugly, but I truly, truly think that if you're going to afford change, you have to have a like-minded individual in, in there with you being able to guide you. So the choices that you make, you can be sensitive to. Um, you may not recognize that you're re-traumatizing someone or using them as a token until you have a survivor look at you and say, actually, we probably shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's not right. Um, Tom, I just wanted to mention, Tom, this is actually kind of secondary to an earlier question you asked. So I'm just going to ask his earlier question and then we can go to this one. Okay. Um, 
Tom asked earlier if um, this kind of uh, trafficking, human trafficking, is done sort of in networks like a like a drug trade, or is it you know in more individuals or a mix? So it's probably a little bit of a mix. I will say that most of the people that get trafficked doesn't tend to be as large of an organization as drug trafficking, just because if you think about it in the sense of a commodity, right? So um, let's think about you have, I'm going to sell you uh, this bag of weed. Okay. You're going to pay me $10 for this bag of weed. And however long it takes you to finish that $10 worth of weed, it's gone. Now I have to have an organization or a large facility of, of product behind me to be able to continue to supply you over and over with $10 worth of weed. That means I have to grow it. I have to farm it. I have to fertilize it. I have to, I have to harvest it. I have to do all the things that get it from point A to point B back to your pocket. But if I have Sally Joe sitting over here and I can charge you $20 for a blowjob every single time you call me, I've got the same girl every single time. She's not gone. You didn't use her up. And I can, I can bill off of her every single time, multiple times for however long she lasts for me, then I have a reusable commodity. So we start to see that what you start to see is that you don't have to have an organization as large as a drug cartel or as large as a drug operating facility to be able to make money as a trafficker. Your, your run of the run of the mill guy next door to you may very well have a young girl that he's grooming, that he's using, that he's trafficking. Um, because like I said, he has a reusable commodity. He has something that doesn't go away. He uses it every single time. Um, and as long as he keeps her you know, nails done and hair done and keeps her happy or whatever the things that she needs, then he's going to continue to be able to use her. So that's a great question. Okay. So then let's jump into his next question about the LEO agencies. Uh, is this primarily local LEO agencies or national agencies involved with addressing these networks, um, looking at attacking the financial system? So it's a little bit of both. Um, there has been a, a huge push towards attacking the financial system. Obviously, the basic banking things have been around a long time. They've been going after those for a significant amount of time. What we're, what we're starting to see now is the, the organizations that are... Um, using cryptocurrency or using kind of backdoor type payment options to try to get around. So that's actually both organizations. You, you, we see that primarily on the state levels and with local agencies, but we also see that um, across the nation. So you have larger organizations like the International Rescue Committee that come in and work with the larger organizations that um, kind of house out of, a, out of a larger facility so they can address it on a national, on a national level. I can't answer to what it looks like on a worldwide level because I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that looks like. I think that might be probably very similar to the drug trade in the sense that it's such a larger fish to try to get a hold of. Um, it may be difficult to track that down. So I think from a, on a worldwide worldwide scale, it's probably much more difficult than the simple banking issues. But I do know that there is a huge push right now towards financial training to be able to spot financial crimes. Um, I believe it's. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, the organization, but there is a financial crimes, American financial crimes organization that is pushing towards being able to educate those that are working with prosecutors and law enforcement um, to be able to pick that out. So there is a huge push towards it and it, and it is both, it is local and, and nationwide. Okay. Um, we have, thank you for answering that. Um, I, the chat is kind of we're talking about um, yeah. it's gross to think of some of this stuff and it makes most of us really angry. Um, I wanted to back up to a question that I think this is the right time for. Uh, Mr. Thomas Rosenberg asked, I'm hearing a need for cultural literacy. How do different cultures around the world require its members to behave? In other words, how do we in the moment um, attempt to lift that veil of bias when we're seeing you know, either maybe we're in, say, another country and we see what we think are, are signs of this or we're at home and we're not sure, you know, am I seeing a cultural difference or am I seeing a crime? So I think that it's very difficult to be able to, to pick that out in the moment. So what I encourage people is to just be educated 
be smart about, about what you're involved in. Obviously it's, it's very similar to knowing your audience before you give a talk, you know, you want to research who's going to be there and, and what their interests are. So you kind of know how to gear it. It's the same thing when you go to another country, um, do your homework, learn about the peoples that you're with and what their cultures look like area to area. It is very different. Um, I have a dear friend that I work with uh, here that is a, a neuromonitoring representative and her family is from India. Um, and just 30 miles down the road is another group of peoples that have a very different mindset when it comes to certain things of, of a sexual nature. So I think you have to be aware, you have to be educated, and you have to be willing to ask the questions. Sometimes, sometimes it's okay to just ask certain questions or, or do a quick search on what you feel like is, is happening in front of you. You just have to be sensitive. And if that means that you're going to dedicate your time to learning a little bit more about the cultures that maybe live in your state or the cultures that live in your county, um, to, to have an idea of what you're exposed to. Maybe maybe you house an office full of, of different cultural you know, peoples. Maybe you have two or three people that are from different areas. Get familiar with them. You don't have to be nosy or be rude or be ugly, but learn what their culture is like. Ask the right questions. You know, you want them to know about you as much as you need to know about them. And that gives you a good opportunity to know if what you're seeing um, could very well be culturally normal or a red flag. It, it's hard. It's not easy. Nobody said it's easy, which is why there's so much research going on about it right now. Um, and so many opportunities to be able to take that ball and run with it. And I think that, you know, it becomes very difficult also when you think about the cultural sensitivities area to area, because even as Americans, we think differently in certain ways, right? So if you go down to the deep South, you may have a subset of people that believe a certain way, like I said earlier. Um, I may say as a, as a West Texas girl, you walk in my door and, and you look me in the eye and you shake my hand and we're gonna be fine. Whereas if I go see my friend that lives in upstate Washington and I walk in and I stick my hand out and I look her in the face and try to, and try to shake her, her, you know, roommate's hand, they're going to look at me like I'm crazy. And it's just very different. So you really, really do just have to be sensitive to the people you're around, do your homework, know your audience. Um, and if it doesn't seem right, call the national human trafficking hotline. They have advocates there that can walk you through what you are seeing and tell you if you need to take the next step or they'll take the next step or they'll say, hey, you know, I, I think that's OK. You know, we'll we'll contact the right people. Thanks for calling us. And that'll be that. So don't ever be afraid to make the call. Call the hotline. Call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. You can find that 800 number anywhere and everywhere. There is someone on the other end of the line to walk you through that. If you don't know if your spotty sense is up or something just doesn't feel or seem right, just just make the call. I would rather you be wrong a thousand times and miss it once. Okay. Um, I do want to touch on Tom's comment um, that this cultural issue is a hardship for some military. Um, you know, obviously we hear a lot of horror stories about military folks who are involved um, in this trade, but what we don't hear a lot about is how traumatizing it is, say, for a parent who's in the military and deployed and sees these things happening. So um, just, you know, I just wanted to touch on that comment. Um, real quick, I think our last question, um, can you talk a little bit about the effect that COVID um, and sort of people being stuck at home with their computers has had um, in this area? Sure. Um, so I think that the first thing I think is that we're not ever going to be able to see a, a good number come out of this for a couple of years, because obviously reporting is hindsight. Um, but I do think we have to be smart in recognizing that anytime you take someone and, and give them a oh, anytime you take someone and give them an opportunity to be bored at home, we get into trouble, right? So we start doing some things that maybe we shouldn't be doing. And then um, I also think that you've given people the weapon or the tool that they need to be vindictive and to be, you know, to feed maybe something in the back of them that they wouldn't feed before. Um, maybe you have someone that because they were busy doing other things or because they were able to go to work or because they were able to live a normal life, they, they were able to keep those addictive personality traits behind them. Whereas now they have all the tools at their fingertips readily available to them and nobody monitoring them and watching them all the time that they're able to feed into that a little bit more. So maybe it's an addictive personality thing. Maybe it's something that they've tried to push away and can't. Um, 
Sadly, uh, my personal and professional opinion is that we're going to see an increase in the number of familial trafficking victims um, because of COVID. That's hard to think about. It's, it's as sick to think about a reusable commodity as it is to think about familial trafficking. Um, but one of the big realities we have to face is that during COVID, so many people lost their jobs. So many people were having a difficult time paying the bills or putting food on the table. And so what we're going to see, and I fear we're going to see, is the number of people that are willing to traffic their children um, to pay their bills or to get themselves the things that they felt like they needed um, that they can't get before. So I think COVID has affected it in that way. I don't know, again, that we're ever going to get an accurate number, but I think that you've we've basically added fuel to the fire in so many ways. But sadly, I think that because what it has done to our economy and because what it has done to people's ability to, to take care of themselves and their family members um, and their children, we're going to start to see a, a familial number increase. And that's the bad part. Okay. Um, there's a question that um, I had skipped over because I was waiting to hear more questions from Tom. Um, and I figured this would be like a bookend with it. Uh, Gemmelin asks, how can we help human trafficking in other countries in which the U.S. has military bases? So um, as a country, maybe, how can we exert some influence there? Or can we, you know, as military, we, you know, we all are supporting the military as the public. Sure. Is there a way for us to influence that? You know, I, um, Tom, I can't give you a good answer to that because I don't know what the rules are when it comes to uh, an American base being on, um, or an American military base being on foreign soil. Um, I don't know that we can have a huge impact so much as maybe to just lead by example, maybe for um, as, as our troops or as the people that are stationed over there are interacting with um, the people from other countries that they're able to present themselves in a way that allows them to show what is and isn't right. And I know that's not a great answer, but I don't know what we're allowed to do from a military standpoint. So I, I can't give, I can't give you a great answer. I don't know. I've never been in the military and I've never been over to a military base in a different facility. So I don't know what that looks like. Um, I don't know how much interaction you necessarily have. So um, being able to influence outside of just being a good human and, and being a good presence when you're there and leading by example, I don't know what more we could do. I think that would be a question that has to be directed more to um, a military individual um, that maybe has the same type of passion or that has run across it. Okay. Uh, she is actually raising her hand, Jevelyn, if you want to unmute and ask your question. Hi, Kelly. And Kristen, everyone. Uh, I'm glad that I actually Chris invited me to this on LinkedIn and I added it to my calendar yesterday or today sometime. Anyways, I asked my question because um, it was probably like 2000, early 2000, there's this lifetime docudrama called Human Trafficking. And obviously it was fictional in what they portrayed, like it was fictional in, you know, it was a lifetime movie, but it's real. It's a real problem. And it was so eye-opening to me. And um, I, I remember learning about it also in high school, hearing a victim speak to my high school, which was an all girls in San Francisco and talk about, you know, it's not just people from other countries. It's, it's girls in our own neighborhoods that are getting pimped out by Johns. And so they're, they don't have their freedom. And it was a local organization called SAGE that um, helped her get out of it. But um, my question was <clears throat> because like we know it happens not just in our own backyards in America, but also in other countries. And they usually come here and are trafficked here to be sex workers. Um, but specifically like, I know it happens in the Philippines as well as other third world and first world countries, but um, I guess, I mean, I definitely want to learn more. Um, I've not spent too much in this, on this topic, but I'm, I'm very much somebody who loves learning and wants to help, especially women. And especially now as a new mom, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm back in that mindset of like, I need to find my purpose and help people and 
Um, yes, yeah, so I just, I don't, I know you don't have the answer, which is totally fine. I, and I think maybe connecting with everybody else, um, you know, I can keep learning, but I, I don't know what I'm asking, <laughs> but I like the U.S. definitely has a big influence in the Philippines, even unofficially, because we don't control the country anymore. But we have bases there. We have people there. We have Americans, you know, vacationing there. And it doesn't have to be specifically that country, right? It could be Costa Rica. It could be Mexico. It could be Canada. It could be Los Angeles. I mean, I live near San Francisco. It's a big international city. You know, any anywhere where there's ports, girls are at least in the Lifetime movie, uh, traffic in like, um, I think those big shipping containers. So um, I guess what, what do you suggest that I can do because I am so uh, fired up again about this? Um, I think that you have to find an organization that's local to you. Um, someplace maybe that is doing some good work in your, in your hometown or, or in your city or somewhere close to you see what kind of work they're doing, see what kind of volunteers they need, get it, you know, get involved, um, become a volunteer first. Maybe you want to take that a step further and become um, a, a child sexual exploitation advocate. Um, you said you live in California? Yes, right next to San Francisco. So there is an organization called the West Coast Children's, uh, yeah, West Coast Children's, that has an amazing um, child sex trafficking um organization for training. I think that that would be a great place for you to start. You can actually um, take their child sexual exploitation training class um, and then utilize it however you want to in, in whatever organization you volunteer for. You can even become a trainer for that type of organization. You can um, petition your local school, see what kind of education and awareness they have for this for school children. You can take that through some of the youth programs and see what kind of training and education they have at the youth programs. I think that you have to ask yourself um, as a mom and, and as someone that's fired up about trafficking, where your heart is and where you want to serve. And then you find that um, you find that resource locally to you and you just jump in and jump in head first and don't take no for an answer and just just keep pushing and be a volunteer and, and be an advocate. And I promise you, you're going to find your niche and you're going to find a way to help out. Thank you for all that. And thank you. Awesome so answer. And uh, Gemma Lynn, there's a, 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 some additional resources in the chat because we have some folks here from the Bay. Um, I'm gonna real quick give a plug for next week. And then um, I am going to ask Miss Kelly to kind of give us um, what, if anything, is a message of hope around this um, to close us out. Because I realize this is heavy. I realize this is triggering for a lot of you folks. Um, most of us have been uh, affected by this in some way. Uh, yes, Karen, this is weekly. We do a different topic every week, which is a fabulous, woo! Uh, is a fabulous segue into next week. We have um, a group of a, of a few people who are going to talk to us about the sort of the current attention given to police violence. Uh, we have an indigenous activist who's going to be with us, uh, someone who's working with the LAPD on reforming programs, and then um, uh, a gentleman who basically uh, he commentates a lot on issues with the African-American community, with the press. So keep an eye out for that. Um, and that is going to be like a free-for-all, ask whatever you want to ask kind of situation. So I'm going to ask Ms. Kelly, you know, is there any hope around this? Um, I guess, you know, maybe the attention it's getting, but, you know, there's a lot of things competing for attention right now. So what, what do you say to us? I say you're here. You've already done it. Um, I, I'm, yes, there's hope because you guys are sitting here and you're sitting here listening to me and you're asking amazing questions. And so I know you're engaged and I know you care and I know your heart is in it. Um, yes, it's heavy and yes, it's terrible. Um, and any crime against humanity is terrible. You know, we, we never, ever, ever want to process that. And it is triggering and it is traumatizing. And, um, and, and for each of us in different ways, maybe because of someone we love or maybe for us personally, so there absolutely is hope. I say if, if you, if this is pushing you in any way, form or fashion, it's lit, lit a little fire in you or your stomach's turning in just a way, just get involved in where you are and, and find organizations that are doing things. And you know what, if there's not an organization in your area that's doing something, it's happening there. Get an organization together, do something. 
Um, find out what your local nonprofits are doing. Find out what your local police departments are doing um, and see how you can serve and, and let that be what pushes you. And, and like I said, maybe that's just simply that you want to um, that you want to, to serve monetarily. Maybe that's maybe that's your thing. So I think that there's always hope just in the fact that you guys are sitting here. You want to hear about this and you want to do something about it. That means that there's hope. Awesome. All right, let's unmute. Um, I think this deserves a round of applause because this was a lot of information from one person who bore the burden of this. <laughs> Thank y'all. Thank you, Kelly. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, friends. So we'll see you next week. Um, also triggering in a different way. You know, we live to serve. So uh, we'll do that. And then the week after we are doing just a community roundtable on current events. So it's going to be fantastic. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, I really, I really appreciate it. This will be recorded and I am saving the chat. So if you need to run to Runza right now and get food and don't want to save anything, let me know and I'll make sure you get it. Okay. Thank you. Bye everybody. Thank you again for tuning into this special episode on the Leading People First podcast. We hope you can join us next time live as we come together to learn, activate, and empower to make a difference in the world. Again, we meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. You can find the group and next event on LinkedIn. If you'd like more information, feel free to reach out to me directly. All of the group information as well as my own is in the show notes. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear more of our conversations moving forward and share this episode. We're so excited that you've joined us in this movement. Let's go out into the world and lead together. Stay awesome.